Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and I have looked forward to this inaugural program on the topic of Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. So come on in, grab a cup of coffee, and pull up a chair. Let's have a good discussion. In this country, there are over 5.2 million people living with Alzheimer's disease and many, many others who have dementia due to other conditions. Alzheimer's disease and other dementias account for $203 billion, with a B, billion dollars per year in expenditures for diagnosis and management. One out of every two adults living in the United States is touched in some manner by Alzheimer's disease, perhaps a parent, a spouse, a sibling, a friend. With millions of people living into the age of increased risk of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias each year, we are clearly standing on the brink of the Alzheimer epidemic. It is a condition that you want to know about. It is my hope that this program will help you to know about it. Something very interesting happened back in 2011. The first baby boomers turned 65 years of age. By 2030, when the last of these baby boomers turned 65, it is estimated that there will be 72 million older Americans, older than 65 years, and these will make up 20% of the total population. Ladies and gentlemen, these are the individuals that are most vulnerable to developing dementia. It is this segment of the population that will account for a marked increase in cases of dementia at a time when the size of the under-65 working segment of the population, that segment of the population that will be supporting everyone else, is considerably smaller than it is now. With the growth in this segment of the population, these baby boomers coming into the age of increased risk, the $203 billion per year in expenditures that we have now will explode to an estimated $1.2 trillion per year. How did we get to this point? We will talk about that issue in our second segment today. First, I would like to extend to you a question, the answer, answer to which may be a surprise to you. Think of yourselves for a moment as being the director of a clinic that specializes in the care of older individuals with memory problems. Let's pretend that your clinic staff saw 100 individuals over the age of 65 with a recent onset of memory or other cognitive difficulties. How many would you cure? And by cure, I mean how many of these 100 individuals would be treated in such a way that they would no longer have memory impairments? An interesting question, right? Write your answer in indelible ink so that you cannot change your answer later and tell your friends that you were right all along. And we have a friend on the line. Pearl, how are you today? It's fine. How are you doing? It is great to hear from you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Pearl Merritt, who is nationally known for the contributions that she has made to dementia care. She is now a regional dean for Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, 
And Pearl was uh, formerly the executive vice president of Sears Methodist Retirement System, where she created a um, uh, the standard for living conditions for individuals who are being cared for with Alzheimer's disease. And that was the Windcrest facility. It's been copied all over the country. And Pearl, I know you're blushing. You are a person of such humility, but I also want to point out that you were the first person to bring the greenhouse concept into the state of Texas when you were president of Buckner Retirement Services. So I have treasured my friendship with you, and I thank you for calling in. Thank you. I just... I just wanted to say that your radio program is so timely, Dr. Brinkman. It's um, startling the numbers that you, you know, you quoted all of those statistics. And um, certainly I think what is very startling also that one in nine people age 65 and older has Alzheimer's disease. And one in nine people, you know, that's a, that is amazing and it's very frightening. And I am just, um, I think it's wonderful that you've got this radio program where people from all over can call in and receive such valuable information from you. I know that you are certainly a very well-known national speaker and an expert in your field, so I think that your your radio program is so timely and going to be such a help to many, many people. Well, Pearl, thank you so much for your kind words. I'm going to ask you a question. Let me remind you that you are on the air and being recorded. Will you be a guest on one of our future programs? That would be an honor. I would love to do that. Thank you. Well, I'm fascinated by the work that you are now doing in teaching nurses uh, at all levels of licensing and training um, the the skills that they need as they deal with an older population and a population that um, is uh, seen more and more to have memory difficulties. So I would like to talk with you about that, and there are many other things that we'll we'll discuss. Pearl, thank you. Yes, I look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pearl. Have a good evening. Okay, you too. Now let's talk about dementia. There is a lot of confusion about the terms used in discussing cognitive changes in older adults. I have heard people say, I don't mind having Alzheimer's disease as long as I don't have dementia. And I've heard others say, well, I don't mind having dementia as long as I don't have Alzheimer's disease. What do these statements mean? What do they reveal about our understanding of these conditions? Well, dementia is an interesting term. It's derived from a Greek word. The prefix D means loss of, and the mentia part refers to mental abilities. So it simply means that some aspects of mental abilities have been lost. It does not imply severity, and it does not imply an etiology. A person may have some loss of cognitive skills to the degree that It impacts on their daily functioning, but the person may continue to be independent in all aspects of living. Nevertheless, dementia is a term that may be applied to point out that there is a significant loss of cognitive abilities in that individual. Loss of cognitive abilities may occur at any age, not necessarily just in the aging segment of our population. For example, a young man in his 20s may sustain a traumatic brain injury, and if there are long-term deficits, the term dementia would be applied correctly to that person. Dementia is, of course, more common in older individuals, and it is the area of greatest concern as far as this program is concerned. So dementia, this loss of cognitive abilities, may be caused by many things. The term does not imply a specific etiology. Etiology refers to the cause or the underlying condition that leads to the symptoms. In the case of dementia in older individuals, many things may cause the symptoms, the cognitive loss. So let's now return to our interesting question brought up earlier. Think of yourselves for a moment as being the director of a clinic that specializes in the care of older individuals with memory impairments. Let's pretend that your clinic staff saw 100 individuals over the age of 65 with a recent onset of memory and other cognitive difficulties. How many would you cure? In other words, how many would be treated in such a way that they would no longer have memory impairments? What's your answer? 
Have you made the incorrect assumption that if an older person has dementia, he or she cannot be treated? The results of research provide varying answers, but it is generally considered that you will be able to cure 20 of those 100 individuals who are over 65 and who have recent onset of memory or other cognitive difficulties. Importantly, how do we identify these individuals who can be treated successfully? Basically, through standard diagnostic procedures. A thorough review of history will identify how the symptoms came about suddenly, overnight, gradually, coinciding with some other illness or event. The history will also reveal whether the symptoms have been gradually worsening, fluctuating a great deal day to day, sudden in onset and then improving a little, or unchanging since onset. These historical factors direct the diagnosing physician to consider various causative conditions. The physical exam will reveal potential illnesses or conditions that can cause dementia, and components of a neurological exam may reveal evidence that there is a focal or lateralized problem in the brain. Specific review of medications that are known to cause cognitive change or dementia may uh, identify key problem areas that would allow successful treatment. Following history, certain diagnostic studies would be ordered. Labs, which would include a standard metabolic profile, screening for thyroid problems, deficiencies in B12 or folate. Um, in the past, screening for neurosyphilis was also included because 100 years ago, neurosyphilis accounted for the majority of cases of dementia, but such is no longer the case, and this screening is no longer done routinely in most locations. Screening should also include your analysis to rule out a urinary tract infection. And then finally, an imaging study should be done. This would be a CT scan or an MRI. This study may identify conditions such as accumulated strokes, mass lesions, communicating hydrocephalus, chronic subdurals, things like that that uh, can cause dementia. So after all of these things are completed, the data are integrated by the physician and a judgment is made regarding etiology. If specific medications are sp suspected to be causing the problem, the medications are stopped and a re-evaluation of cognitive functioning is completed. Similarly, if there's some specific medical condition, such as a B12 deficiency, that is thought to be causative, that condition is treated and the person is re-evaluated. So, let's return to the question of reversible causes of dementia in the elderly. Traditionally, it has been thought that depression was the most common cause of reversible dementia. Actually, it's a little more complicated than that, as we've seen more recently. Depression can cause dementia in an older individual, and successful treatment of the depression will then result in improvement in the dementia. This was termed depressive pseudodementia, meaning that it looks like dementia, but it's actually depression. Recent experience has suggested as well, however, that depression may also be an early signal that there are some cognitive changes, potentially reversible, possibly not, and thus re-evaluation after the treating the depression is very important. The next most common cause that has to be addressed is medication side effects. These are thought to be the second most common reversible cause of dementia. Certain medications may be very tolerable in younger individuals but may be intolerable in older individuals. Benadryl may be an example of this, or anticholinergics such as artanor cogentin. Interactions among medications may lead to problems as well. If a medication is metabolized in the liver, for example, a medication may be added which slows liver metabolism, thus producing side effects of the first medication. So these things need to be considered very carefully. Then we consider other conditions such as urinary tract infections, respiratory infections, previously unrecognized diabetes, etc. And uh, these are conditions that can cause dementia and that should be um, associated with an improvement in dementia when they are treated successfully. 
Occasionally, a person will develop a combination of a change in the walking pattern. We call it a broad-based gait. The feet are farther apart to maintain stability. If that happens together with urinary incontinence or loss of urine control and memory loss, consideration may be given to a diagnosis of communicating or so-called normal pressure hydrocephalus, which can be treated surgically. So, obviously... When someone has a recent onset of memory difficulties and consideration is being given to a diagnosis of dementia, it is critically important that the information be presented to the primary care physician so that the appropriate history and examination and labs and imaging studies can be done because it is just such a um, uh, such a disappointment that someone would have memory problems with a reversible condition and that condition not be identified. We are about to go to a break here. I thank you, and we will be back in about three minutes. Us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Welcome back. I am enjoying the opportunity to talk with you this evening about these reversible conditions that can cause dementia. And I believe that if one person in this country is helped by the uh, airing of information about the reversibility of some dementias, then this show will have been successful. Uh, I see that Ken is on the line. Ken, how are you this evening? Good. It is good to talk to you. I uh, don't see you nearly as much as I wish I did. This is Ken Carpenter, who is the uh, Chief Operating Officer for Christian Care Centers, and he's the former director of the uh, Garrison Alzheimer Care Center, which was a specialty Alzheimer facility that also was a teaching facility for physician residents and for other professionals in the allied health sciences. So, Ken, welcome. Thank you, sir. You have always demonstrated to me the most wonderful combination of insightful and critical thinking skills and a wonderful heart for the people for whom you have provided care and overseen care. Well, thank you for that, Dr. Brinkman. But I also like to say the same thing about yourself. And we've been associates for many years, and I appreciate your sacrifice and your serving so many people as they deal with this horrible disease process to bring hope and to bring and provide answers to so many unanswered questions. It's just a real lack of real knowledge of what these folks are dealing with. And I, I appreciate very much your hosting this, this uh, program, and we need much more of this, sir, and I appreciate that very much. Well, Ken, thank you very much. I appreciate your support and encouragement, and I hope that we can make a success of this program. I look forward to seeing you soon, my friend. Very much so, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, we have talked about these reversible conditions that cause dementia, and now I want to talk a little bit about the other 75 or 80 percent of individuals who are not found to have a reversible cause. In these cases, of course, Alzheimer's disease is the most overwhelmingly common cause, followed by vascular dementia. These two account for probably 80 percent or so of the population with irreversible dementias. 
Alzheimer's disease is a disease which uh, results in progressive atrophy or progressive loss of the number of brain cells that a person has. And this atrophy occurs in a very predictable sequence from one structure to another. Vascular dementia, on the other hand, results from cerebrovascular disease or problems in the circulation of blood in the brain. Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia may coexist in about 15% of cases, but the two of them overwhelmingly account for the majority. Other less common causes of dementia may include something called Lewy body disorder, Frontotemporal dementia, you probably have heard of Jakob Kreutzfeldt disease, which is better known in the um, uh, bovine world as mad cow disease. Pick's disease, which is a subcategory of frontotemporal dementia, progressive supranuclear palsy. There are a number of conditions in this category. So let's address this question first. How certain is a clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease? It is clear that a final diagnosis does require autopsy verification. I wish that we had the clinical skills to be absolutely certain prior to death, but we simply do not. Progress is being made, such as through the uh, neuroimaging um, undertakings uh, of the Alzheimer Association and the National Institutes of Health. But... um, The hallmark of Alzheimer's disease consists of specific microscopic changes in brain cells, which, when it's seen with the appropriate clinical history, uh, leads a pathologist to the conclusion of Alzheimer's disease. In reality, out in real life, Alzheimer's disease does not exist alone in an individual, but coexists with everything that has accumulated in that individual's medical history. And many of those things can produce lesser compromise of cognitive functioning. We will talk in the future about what these microscopic changes are and some surprising results, actually, in individuals who are found to have the microscopic characteristics of Alzheimer's disease, but who actually had relatively little change in cognitive abilities prior to death. There is much to be learned from these observations. Now, let's talk about a few of these others. Pick's disease is a subcategory of frontotemporal dementia and usually has its onset earlier in life. In Alzheimer's disease, one sees prominent memory changes and language changes and things along those lines early on. With Pick's disease, prominent early symptoms are behavioral and personality change because the degeneration is in the front parts of the brain, the frontal lobes, which involve emotional control and personality characteristics. Another condition is something that's been called primary progressive aphasia. Um, It can be confused with a stroke at times, but basically a person very slowly, very gradually develops a a loss in the ability to find words, to express themselves clearly, to understand what others are saying, to put words together in a sentence. But unlike Alzheimer's disease, persons with primary progressive aphasia have excellent perceptual motor skills and visualizing abilities and things like that. Another condition is Lewy body disorder. Lewy is spelled L-E-W-Y. I have joked with my students that to understand neuropathology, you have to either speak Latin or know the names of dead European scientists, and this is a dead European scientist. Lewy bodies are uh, microscopic inclusion in the brains of some individuals, and if we consider Alzheimer's disease on one extreme in which the cognitive changes are very prominent and Parkinson's disease at the other extreme where movement problems are prominent, then Lewy body disorder would be in the middle of those two. Lewy body disorder would be associated with memory deficits and cognitive changes and that sort of thing. But you will also begin to see uh, some of the very mild symptoms of Parkinson's disease as well. Unfortunately, one of the difficulties with Lewy body disorder tends to be visual hallucinations early on. Not hallucinations in the sense of a psychotic disorder where hallucinations, seeing things, um, are uh, t- tend to be rather terrifying or very intensive. With Lewy body disorder, they tend to be fairly benign. Commonly, people will see p- non-threatening people in their home or furry animals sitting on their bed or things like that. 
Each of these disorders is a degenerative disorder and as such is progressive in nature. Each is associated with degeneration in specific structures or pathways in the brain, and each is thought to have its own unique pathophysiology, the sequence of events which take place initially at a microscopic level and which results in progressive brain impairment. Each has its own unique clinical characteristics and its own rate of progression. Then we come to vascular disease uh, or vascular dementia. Cerebrovascular disease simply means that uh, most commonly due to arterial uh, arterial sclerosis, Uh, There is difficulty with circulation through the brain, and unlike other areas of the body, the brain cells cannot live very long without a steady supply of oxygen and glucose. So vascular dementia is the condition that results when a person has had a series of very small strokes, none of which may have resulted in a clinical diagnosis of a stroke, but the accumulation of which result in significant compromise in um, memory function and other aspects of cognition. Vascular dementia typically has a much more sudden onset. It's not uncommon that someone would mention uh, seeing a person change significantly from one day to the next. Additionally, vascular dementia tends not to progress quite so smoothly, but tends to have more of a stepwise progression, usually a sudden worsening followed by a little bit of recovery, then another sudden worsening, then a little bit of recovery. So vascular dementia is differentiated mainly by the temporal course, the course of symptoms over time, and by the risk factors for vascular disease. So we are now going to go back to commercial break, and when we follow up, we will talk about how we came to this point. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you for staying with us. I'm grateful to you for dialing in and for sharing this time. And I hope that uh, it will be something that benefits your lives. I have a friend on the phone, Michelle Webb, my dear friend from North Carolina. How are you? 
Hello. How are you, Dr. Brinkman? I am doing well. Oh, I'm so glad to hear from you. I, I just want to say, um, just to start off, that I'm so excited for your listeners. You know, we, we really need a forum to, to discuss Alzheimer's disease and other, other related dementias. And I, I know that just from my personal experience, that people are looking for education and they're looking for reputable resources. And I know that they will have that in you. And your, your listeners are really in for a treat. Well, you are so kind. And, you know, you have spent much of the past few years traveling over big parts of the country, educating on the provision of rehabilitation services in long-term care settings and things like that. And I understand that you are now the director of dementia care for UHS Pruitt Corporation. Yes, that is correct. And and I'm so excited to be in this role. Uh, you know, what we're trying to do, Dr. Brinkman, is, is really the same thing that you're doing, which is trying to improve the quality of life for people who have um, Alzheimer's disease or other, uh, another form of dementia. What we're trying to do is to make sure that people really are functioning at their very, very highest level. And that, and while we're doing that, that we preserve a person's dignity, that we uh, provide that respect, that love, that nurturing, all the things that, that people long for, whether they have Alzheimer's disease or not. So I'm so excited about this position, and again, our our goal is really to just have people functioning at their highest level and to know that they're loved and respected. You know, Michelle, what I love about what you do and what you are especially going to be able to do in this new position is um, address the issue of plasticity of the brain. In other words, given that the brain is in some kind of an impaired state, you recognize that there are things that you can do that will help that person to be nearer the upper limit of their biological capability. And in doing that, you improve the quality of life tremendously. Thank you for what you do, Michelle, and thank you for the encouragement. Oh, absolutely. You are most welcome. I will talk to you soon. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. I'm blessed to have wonderful people in my life that uh, have encouraged me to do this and that have helped to shape my thinking about Alzheimer's disease and the other dementias. I'm very, very grateful for that. We talked about the reversible and irreversible dementias. Now let's talk about how we came to this point. When Dr. Alzheimer described certain microscopic changes in the brain of an individual whose name was Auguste and her last initial was D to preserve her confidentiality, Um, uh, This was in Germany, and we will talk more about this case uh, in our last segment. But when he described those changes and presented them publicly in 1907 in Germany, um, it was the first time that a specific microscopic pathology uh, like this could be tied to a specific set of symptoms. So it was quite an accomplishment. If you look at the neurological textbooks from that first century, uh, first decade of the 20th century on up to 1970 or so, they all said pretty much the same thing, that Alzheimer's disease was a rare disorder affecting people in their 40s and 50s. It was generally thought at that point, and Alzheimer actually uh, wrote this as well, that when people over 65 developed dementia, it was due to problems in the circulation of the brain. Uh, Alzheimer used the term atheromatous degeneration, meaning that nerve cells would degenerate because they did not have adequate blood supply. Uh, Subsequently, the term arteriosclerotic brain degeneration was used. And so the thought was, if the person was over 65 with memory and other similar problems, they had circulation problems in the brain, and if they um, had onset of these problems below the age of 65 in their 40s and 50s, they had this rare disorder that Alzheimer had described. Interestingly, two studies, one published in 1968 and the other published in 1970 by the same authors, Blessed, Tomlinson, and Roth, really changed our thinking. These researchers 
did autopsies on the brains of a large number of people in long-term care facilities. And they specifically were looking at those people who had evidence of dementia. They were expecting to see arteriosclerosis of the brain. They were expecting to see small strokes, circulation problems, and things like this with the understanding that that would be what was causing the dementia. Surprisingly, they did not see that in most of the brains, but what they saw was the very thing that Dr. Alois Alzheimer had described in 1907. They had the um, uh, beta amyloid plaques and the neurofibrillary tangles. These are the two key uh, microscopic findings in Alzheimer's disease, and they had the generalized brain atrophy without evidence of specific strokes that, have would, that would have caused the problem. So there's a sudden change in our thinking at that point. A few years later, in the mid-1970s, a fellow named Dr. Peter Davies in the United States identified that there was a deficiency in a very specific neurotransmitter. A neurotransmitter is a chemical messenger that goes from a neuron into the synapse and stimulates the next neuron. And the neurotransmitter that is called acetylcholine, or abbreviated ACH, was becoming identified at that point as the key neurotransmitter in memory functioning. So, Dr. Peter Davies specifically assessed the um, density of these cholinergic neurons, these neurons that use ACH as a neurotransmitter in Alzheimer's disease and in normal uh, older brains. And what he found basically is just with the passing of time in a neurologically and cognitively normal individual, there's a 50% reduction in the number of these ACH uh, secreting neurons. With Alzheimer's disease, that reduction was 90% or more. Now, interestingly, at that time, there was a, a very unstable uh, drug, not unstable in terms of being dangerous, although it could be dangerous, but unstable in terms of not being amenable to pill form, so it had to be injected, and that drug was called physostigmine. It was identified in a number of different locations that a subcutaneous injection of physostigmine would actually produce improvements in memory functioning for a short period of time, for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or so. And so, given the findings of Dr. Peter Davies and what we knew about physostigmine, it seemed reasonable then to use some type of a, a drug that would have to be developed that would improve the activity of ACA and thereby treat some of the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Well, um, as the uh, world was adjusting to the fact that Alzheimer's was much more common than expected, uh, we have the announcement uh, by the family of Rita Hayworth somewhere around 1980 or so, I don't remember exactly, 1979 or 80, that she had Alzheimer's disease and there was actually a movement at that time to call it Rita Hayworth's disease in the same manner that uh, ALS was called Lou Gehrig's disease. And then, of course, in 1994, uh, former President Ronald Reagan announced that he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And um, that uh, public announcement, I think, did a, a lot of good for people who were dealing quietly and in the background with the kinds of problems that are presented by Alzheimer's disease. Now, we have a lot of Alzheimer's disease, and there's going to be a lot more of it coming. And the reason is... Not that people are living longer, they're really not living longer, but more people are living to be old. You know, the um, uh, life expectancy today is in the United States is in the upper 70s, and that's quite a significant increase over the last 50 years or so. As more people live into advanced age, more people live into the age at greatest risk of Alzheimer's disease. So let's look at that age-related risk. At the age of 65, a person may have perhaps a 2% risk of having Alzheimer's disease. At the age of 75, it's estimated that that risk increases to 14 or 15%. And then at the age of 85, that risk increases to about 45%. So we see overwhelmingly that Alzheimer's disease is not a rare disorder affecting individuals in their 40s and 50s, but it is an extremely common disorder. The greatest 
cause of um, failed mental abilities in our older individuals. And for that reason, the, the uh, pathology of Alzheimer's disease, the clinical study of it, and the attempts to treat it have been addressed. So let's talk just a little bit about what's happened over the years in terms of medication development. Physostigmine, as I mentioned earlier, was simply not amenable to pill form. But there was another substance that's abbreviated THA that had the same action in the brain and that could be provided to an individual in pill form. And that substance was introduced as Tacrin, T-A-C-R-I-N, the very first medication ever approved by the Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Tacrin had certain side effects that were unacceptable and um, other medications were being developed. And so the next one on the market was actually Aricept, which is now available in a generic form called Donepazil. And Donepazil has been demonstrated just as an example to delay nursing home placement on the average for 18 months or longer. So clearly there is a role for the symptomatic treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Other medications since that time include the skin patch called Exelon and another medication which um, is uh, actually um, uh, involves the same uh, components, and that is galantamine, which is available either as a capsule or as a liquid. So we now have these medications available to us, and another one which is a generally protective agent for the brain, Namenda. We're going to go to break in just a minute, and when we come back, I'm going to talk about a couple of nutritional supplements that have been, that have been approved by FDA. So we'll be right back. life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Caring for someone with autism can be full of challenges and triumphs. Wherever you are on your autism journey, we all benefit from good information and guidance. Join host Rob Haupt every week for a friendly show that will leave you inspired and informed. Tune in to Autism Spectrum Radio. Our guests include parents, advocates, and experts to discuss current experiences, treatments, and breakthroughs for those living with autism. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Thank you very much for being with us, and we have a call. Mary from Texas, how are you? Hi, Dr. Brinkman. How are you this evening? I am doing fine. How are you? I'm good. I've learned a lot in just the um, 
first part of the show I've already been listening to, so I really have appreciated the information you're sharing. Thank you very much. Well, Mary, thank you. I really appreciate the feedback. Have you known anyone that has Alzheimer's disease? Uh, probably um, four, I think, four or five um, aunts and uncles on uh, my father's side and then a couple of aunts on my husband's father's side. Mm-hmm. So so you've seen uh, the progressive change in yes. cognitive abilities that this brings about. Well, it, it is my, yes, Mary, it is my hope that, that this program will be helpful to people like you that um, don't necessarily have the technical and scientific background, but have all the heart and all the commitment so that uh, life can be made as good as possible for those who have one of these disorders. Is there any specific question that I could address for you? Well, one of them you're just about to address, the nutritional supplements, and then the other one, I don't know if it's on your agenda or not, but I was wondering about the, I don't know if it's a myth or a reality, but the hereditary inclinations for that. Those are two very good questions, Mary. So um, I will go ahead and disconnect from you here, and I will address both of those questions. First of all, all, the the and thank you so much for your call. That means a great deal to me. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. There are two nutritional substances that have been approved by FDA in this area. The first one is a substance called axona, A-X-O-N-A. If we consider that the cells of the brain become very inefficient in extracting energy from glucose, then it was felt that providing another substrate instead of glucose, a ketone substrate, might improve the energy available to the neurons in someone who has either mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease. And so that was the thought behind Axona. And there are at least two that I'm aware of, double-blind placebo-controlled studies that indicate that it is therapeutically helpful in mild cognitive impairment, or in early Alzheimer's disease. It's a granular substance that can be mixed into a drink or mixed with other kinds of things. And um, uh, as a medical food, which is a new category that FDA came out with about eight or nine years ago, uh, so you have medications and then you have medical foods. As a medical food, unfortunately, it's not covered under drug coverage typically with with insurance. The second one is something called serifolin, C-E-R-E-F-O-L-I-N. Now, serifolin has not been given FDA approval specifically for Alzheimer's disease, but is given approval for the metabolic conditions that give rise to memory disorders in older individuals. Uh, This is the specific FDA wording on it. Serifolin is basically folic acid in a form that... um, Uh, seems to be helpful. So those are the two nutritional substances approved by FDA. There are many other things that um, are uh, nutritional considerations that are helpful, and it is my hope to have a program in a few weeks just on nutritional issues so that we'll be able to address those things in a lot more detail. Now I want to go to your question about the hereditary component. In reality, there seem to be two Um, different kinds of Alzheimer's disease. One is an inherited disorder, and the other is what has been referred to as the sporadic disorder. The inherited disorder tends to have its onset earlier in life, in the 40s and 50s, tends to be associated with a a pretty rapid progression, and a large percentage of each generation um, has uh, has the Alzheimer diagnosis. There are a number of different research projects in place right now trying to determine whether some of the clues from the identifiable genes there would be helpful to us in understanding how to address the changes in the sporadic form. Now, the sporadic form is the overwhelmingly more common form of Alzheimer's disease. There are some genetic indicators being identified. The one that has been identified the longest is something called the apolipoprotein E4 gene, or APOE4 is the abbreviation for it. And if that gene is present, there is a slight but not a marked increase in the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. It's not a a genetically strong enough effect 
expect that it should lead people to change their reproductive decisions and things like that, as uh, was done with Huntington's disease when the genetic um, basis of it was identified. There are some genetic markers that seem related to the development of beta amyloid. The One of the key uh, microscopic uh, pathological elements is in Alzheimer's disease as well. So this is what we know so far generally about the genetic aspects of Alzheimer's disease. Now, I'm going to switch to another topic just for a couple of minutes here as we come to the end of the program. Uh, Dr. Alois Alzheimer was a great scientist and a great clinician, and it uh, saddens me that his name is associated with such a horrible disease, but he did not go into this uh, profession in order to get a disease named after him. Uh, he was born in an area called Markbright, Germany, one of seven children, and his um, parents placed a high priority on education and a high priority on giving to the community. Uh, Dr. Alzheimer learned early in life that he was not just fascinated with the sciences, but he thoroughly enjoyed the sciences. And so it seemed a natural sequence of events for him to become a physician at that time. And he was uh, a physician who was committed to doing something that was very different from the mainstream of that time. Uh, some of you may know that uh, the world of psychiatry was dominated by the likes of Dr. Sigmund Freud and Dr. Carl Jung and others, people who were looking for early life experiences that would shape um, how personality would develop later on. So Dr. Alzheimer came into this situation um, absolutely as an underdog, but he was convinced that a lot of mental disorders would actually be found to have a neurological basis if you looked persistently and consistently. And so this is what he did. Uh, I have been fascinated by reading his clinic notes with the patient Auguste D. She was a 51-year-old lady who was married to a railroad clerk and had developed horribly severe memory and language changes and changes in emotional control and personality. And her husband simply could not provide for her care anymore and brought her to the uh, Asylum for the Epileptic and Insane in Frankfurt, Germany. We name our hospitals more nicely than that now. But anyway, Dr. Alzheimer was her attending physician there and made such careful clinical notes and then followed up uh, several years later when she passed with the autopsy with very very um, excellent descriptions of the pathological findings and uh, presented this at a um, meeting of psychiatrists in 1907. And his was basically the only presentation at that meeting that had much of anything to do with neurobiology. Everything else was in the area of psychoanalysis and that kind of thing. So my hat is off to Dr. Alzheimer for staying that course. And I want to talk with you more about this man in uh, future discussions that we have. Um, I'm grateful to you for being here tonight and giving me the opportunity to talk with you about Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. We have a great guest next week. Howard Gretzner is the author of Alzheimer's, A Caregiver's Guide and Source Book, uh, published by a great publishing company, John Wiley and Sons, and this is now in its third edition, and when a book like this comes to its third edition, there are a lot of people that are benefiting from that book and wanting to see upgrades, so Howard has very graciously agreed to come join us in a discussion, and so I hope that you will be preparing some good, challenging questions for him, uh, get your questions satisfied on caregiver stress and how, giver, how caregivers deal with this situation. Again, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week.